Daniel chapter 4. I want to say a few things. First of all, I encourage you to look up the... You can Google, Oh Great God, lyrics. The song we just sang. And, and paste it on your phone somewhere. Or write these words down in your notes somewhere. And, and I encourage you to make that your prayer this month, this year. I, we'll sing it again. And I, if you start to meditate on those words, you, you're going to know why I said do that. Oh, that God would answer that prayer. Oh, most, oh great God. Really, really good day. It's, it's July 7th. 2019. It's a really good day. It's sunny out and it's not too hot. It's beautiful. It's not snowing. It's not raining. And man, it's, it's even more exciting for me because 18 years ago, I got married. Uh, yeah. for, for, all, for all you young guys, we, we actually had color pictures back then. This is... This is just a stylized photo, so um, 18 years ago, and, and Molly's not here. She's in Wisconsin, headed to Minnesota today, and so we, we again, but I do ask your prayers for her. She's uh, in Wisconsin with my family. They had an event there for a baby shower, and then she's headed to see her family in Minnesota, so I guess we'll celebrate. We celebrated already. We'll celebrate again. We'll, we celebrate all the time. I'm so thankful. Um, how many of you have read the book of Daniel in your lifetime? If so, can I see a raise of hands? That's most of you. How many of you read this last week, Daniel chapter 4? That's eh, a good amount. I, I encourage you to read the book of Daniel in the month of July. We're going to spend four Sundays in, in the book of Daniel. I'm going to explain why I'm doing that or how I'm going about doing that. This morning, I'm jumping right into, not the middle, but several chapters in, in chapter 4. There's 12 chapters in whole. I, I grew up hearing this song. We didn't sing it much in church, though it was in our hymnal. Uh, a song by Philip Bliss. Philip Bliss, I, most of you don't know, like, hymnists. Philip Bliss wrote, It is well with my soul. Remember that song, It is well with my soul? He also wrote a song called Dare to Be a Daniel. Has anybody heard that song? Not that many. Okay, some of you have. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Could you hear Jay singing that to us? <laughs> dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose true firm, dare to make it known. And the verses are, many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose, sure, dare to make it known. I, I received a text this week from Lisa Howell, who's not able to be here today. She's with family somewhere and she said, she's been reading through the book of Daniel this month or this week. And she said, in our study from Knowing God, there's a little plug for the women's Bible study. I think that's Tuesdays. In our study from Knowing God, great book, I was struck with the thought that I shouldn't dare so much to be a Daniel, but rather know God like Daniel did. 
as a strong and sovereign God. Amen. I pray that not so much we'd say, dare to be a Daniel, I want to be that way. Though I pray, we'll, we're going to see that next week. As we look at Daniel 3 and 6, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. But more so that we would care to know Daniel's God. Welcome to the Old Testament prophets. Welcome to the beginning of the exile of the people of Judah. Exile means they were taken prisoner. They were brought out of the land of Israel and they were brought to the far off east in Babylonia. And they stayed there for 70 years, some for a lot longer. I met a doctor last year or two years ago that are Jewish, that live in, grew up in Iran because he traces his, inherent, his family's ancestors from the Babylonian captivity. You see, God's people had persistently turned away from God and his law. They failed to trust him and to obey him and to thank him and to remember him. They worshiped other gods. They lived like they wanted to. Like they chose and not way God commanded them. They didn't cherish God or fear God. And it said in Jeremiah 25, that's another longer prophet, longer book of the Bible. Jeremiah, God gave a word to Jeremiah saying that the time is up. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. And in fact, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, who is going to be God's servant, he is the leader of Babylon, a terrible tyrant. He's going to come in and he's going to take Israel away and destroy Jerusalem. So Daniel is a boy when he is brought captive from Jerusalem. And the book of Daniel spans about 70 years from about 605 B.C. Now remember in B.C.s it's counting down to zero to around B.C. 536 where Cyrus begins to reign. 70 years, Daniel is actually in, he's an advisor to the kings. I mean, it's just, it's an amazingly long period of time. Imagine right now a presidential advisor still in the White House who's been there since the end of Truman's Truman's office, Harry Truman. That'd be how long Daniel was with the kings. He lives this entire time during the Babylonian exile. He rises to the power as a foreigner. Daniel trusts in God. Daniel believes God's word and power. We're going to see that, or you'll see it if you read the book of Daniel. And Daniel is used by God in writing this book to remind Israel and Judah and all who look to God that everything is still under God's control, even though times are really bad. For God's people at the moment. So these next four weeks we're going to spend in this book. So let me give you a frame, framework for what we're doing here in these next four weeks. I hope you'll see the forest of Daniel. Like you see it as a forest. And you go, oh, I can see. I get an overview and see what's going on in Daniel. So I could get in there and, and actually enjoy each of these different trees within that forest. And we're going to look at some pretty big formative trees of that forest by looking at Daniel. Ancient authors like Daniel, several, I mean, the Psalms do this, and some of the Psalms 
what they did was they would write their books, like this 12-chapter book, and they would write it in a structured format. And, and one of the formats that some of these authors would use is what now modern people call chiasms. And I'm not going to get all into that, but what they would do is they would structure a format, and a chiasm uses parallel or pairs of parallel passages that work from the outside of the passages, like say in this, in Daniel, chapter 1 and chapter 9 are parallel in some ways, if you look at it. Chapter 1 starts with the beginning of the exile. Chapter 9 is the end of the exile. Now you have three more chapters after that are kind of like, they're important, but they're like an appendix in the structure. And then, then you have two parallels that go inside of that 1 and 9. And you actually have 7 and 8 and chapter 2, which will give you Two gives four kingdoms that are coming and visions. And seven and eight, talk, seven talks about four kingdoms. They're parallel. And then you move in and then you've got two stories in chapter three and chapter six of, of courageous, godly people facing bad kings. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter three and Daniel in the lion's den with Belshazzar in chapter six. And then you move into the middle, four and five, that have two kings that get confronted in a pretty serious way by God, God showing, I'm really the boss. And most people think that those four and five is the central point of the book of Daniel that gives us the heartbeat of what God wanted to reveal by letting this 12-chapter prophetic book given to us. This book is not primarily for us to sit here and try to figure out the end times, but for us to bow before the God of the end times. This book is not meant for us to imagine prophecies way down in the future so much as it is to know the prophecies already fulfilled like one, like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man in chapter 9 all authority and he's going to have dominion to the ends of the earth. And we're going to hopefully have goosebumps when we read in chapter 7 and 8 and 9. We'll go, that's Jesus. Daniel's talking about Jesus, and he did that. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His reign will reign forever and ever and ever. Okay, so we're starting in the middle this morning. We're starting with chapters 4 and 5. In fact, I'm just going to leave you to chapter 5, and I encourage you to take chapter 5 and do what I did this morning in chapter 4 and read it carefully. I encourage you to do that this afternoon or this evening. God and about man and what that means for me and how I should live in this life. So if you're a note taker, I, I hope you got the handout that you came in in the bulletin. In the back side of the bulletin, I have some notes, but I also, I, I thought this, I wanted to just kind of drive this home to you this morning. So it's actually placed there, the whole pat, this whole, the message, or I, I want you to get this. The God of the Bible is the God most high. Now, when you read Daniel, you're going to see that phrase, the, the most high God is used regularly, the most high, the most high God. This God rules and reigns supreme over all kings, leaders, rulers, governors, over all powers, satanic or angelic, 
over all the peoples of the world. This God is sovereign. And he is sovereign and rules in the midst of rebellious and proud people, wicked people. And all the while, he is preserving and delivering a remnant few who faithfully trust God against all human odds. This most high God is always perfect. Or to use a biblical word, he's always righteous. He's never wrong. He's never unjust. Even if we think it seems unjust, we got to go, there's something I'm not getting. He is always right. And his enemies will ultimately be defeated and his word will surely be fulfilled. I hope we see that in these next four weeks. Okay. I want to walk you through chapter 4. So look with me in chapter 4. I'm not going to read every verse. I'm going to read a lot of the verses. And I'm going to walk you through this passage. And I'm going to, I want to draw some things out for us to, to take home with, to apply. I, let's ask God to help us with his word right now. God, almost God, oh, most high God, occupy our lowly hearts. Come in and reign supreme. And would you remove every rebel thought? Grant us re repentance and conviction of sin and a, 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 bl a blindness being removed to see ourselves and see you and see Jesus and see our calling as we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Daniel chapter 4 begins in a very interesting way. King Nebuchadnezzar is a historical figure even in the non-biblical records. He was the great, great sovereign king of Babylon who really spread out throughout most of the modern of the world at that time, the ancient world. His kingdom was so grand, so glorious, and some of the wonders of the world like the hanging gardens of Babylon are credited to him. His palaces and his city was amazing in ancient times. Chapter 4 starts from his perspective. We could say that chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So let's listen to what a pagan king has to tell us that the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to write down. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, language that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion endures from generation to generation. If we only knew how much it took for him to be able to write that. We're actually going to get to know because we're going to see the rest of this chapter. What a beginning. So then we move from that beginning of an introduction by Nebuchadnezzar, King Neb. We're going to move to chapter the next section. It's a bad dream, not a good dream. My daughter, when she prays every night, she says, 
Jesus, give me a good dreams and not bad dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had bad dream here. Beginning of verse four. Neb has a dream or a vision and he doesn't know what it means. That's not uncommon for him. In chapter two, we're gonna see that. The dream is of a tree that, I'm not gonna read all of it. I'm just gonna summarize right now. The tree, it's a tree that's beautiful and luscious and it grows and it is so big, it springs up from the earth and it's so great that it covers the earth and it produces a shade and provision and care for birds and animals and beasts and all flesh. It's awesome. And in covering the entire earth, this, this tree does in his dream. But then something happens to that tree. Look at verse 14. 13, in verse 13, it says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one. So this is from God. Came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him, his portion be with the beasts in the field of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Uh, that just can't be good. That's really bad. Okay, so, so here's the next section, starting in verse 19. Daniel, the interpreter, reveals and he warns. So he tells this dream to Daniel, and Daniel, he's a godly man. He'd already been given interpretations of other dreams. He's a man of God, and God reveals secrets to Daniel. Daniel is sent for this purpose. In verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was the pagan name that they gave him, and his thoughts alarmed him. Because remember, it's a bad dream, not a good dream. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream of, or the interpretation alarm you. Just, so the king is like, Daniel, but he uses his pagan name. Belteshazzar, Daniel, don't be worried about this dream because Daniel's like, man, he's upset. And Daniel or Belshazzar, remember that's Daniel is Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. But Daniel knows that's not the case. Daniel knows it's for Nebuchadnezzar. He tells King Neb that God is judging him because he needs to learn that God alone rules and he has only his authority and his supremacy because God gave it to him, and he can take it at any second. He says that he'll have his sanity taken away, and he'll be humiliated and live like a wild beast. That's quite a message to deliver to a sovereign king. So Daniel warns, and in this passage, Daniel says to him, and oh, Nebuchadnezzar, 
Please, will you, will you turn from your ways? Will you be generous to the poor? Will you repent? Maybe God will give you mercy. Kind of, so I want to stop here for a second. Because as I was studying on this, I, I came across Sinclair Ferguson gave four observations about this warning that I think God would encourage us or instruct us. I call it four instructive contrasts. You know what contrast is? There's one thing, and it's so different from this thing, but the differences are so instructive. Like, wow, that that was this, but this was this, and that that should stand out to us. So let's pause here while we're at this, this warning from Daniel. Daniel gives an interpretation of this bad dream. Here's four things. Number one, the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar's insensitivity and Daniel's sensitivity. Did you see that? Maybe you didn't. I didn't see it at first. But, but so Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has this terrible dream, a bad dream, not a good dream. And Daniel interprets, it's bad. It's bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's like this. Oh, man, I wish it was for your enemies. This is really serious. And he was, Nebuchadnezzar could look at Daniel and see, man, this man is troubled. Hey, Daniel, just relax. It's going to be okay. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was insensitive to what this prophecy was. And Daniel took it seriously. And I want you to see the contrast. You, you see, the man being judged was in a terrible predicament. And he didn't see it or feel it. And that was a big problem. And the man of God who was warning him was saying, You're comfortable, but you should be really uncomfortable right now. You are are at ease, but you should be really troubled. And I believe that this is true for our lives. Far too often, we are far too insensitive to things that we should be broken and humbled by. We should be troubled by our own sin and our own patterns that demonstrate that God is not very central in our lives. And I I don't trust in him in the very practical, nitty-gritty things of our lives. Or I, I, I take sin lightly. Or I take my commitments to him or to others lightly. And in this passage, we see the one who is going to be judged very insensitive to the things of God. And oh, that we would be a people. Oh, that we'd first of all be a people that would, when we hear the word of God, we would tremble at it. We would, we would hold the mirror of God's word before us and we would see where we are, we are falling or we are disobedient. And we'd get on our knees and we would confess that sin to God and through Jesus Christ ask him to forgive us and we would ask him to give us the power to obey. And if we need to, we'll go to other brothers and sisters or other helpers in our lives and say, will you help me to to give like I need to, to read the word of God, to obey like I need to, to lead my family like I need to, to care about lost people that are in my life like I need to. We need to take this seriously. And Nebuchadnezzar did not. He was far too insensitive to God's word where Daniel trembled at God's word. And and brothers and sisters in church today, isn't that true of our family that is unsaved? Isn't that true of our neighbors that do not know yet Christ and haven't given themselves to Christ? Isn't that true of those that God has called us to evangelize? They are not sensitive to the things of God, and that's part of the problem. 
That they do not have a conviction that they're in a bad place. They think all is well. And sometimes the greatest gift that God can give somebody is to put them through a massive trial or as I have gone or I'm going through a tremendously agonizing ordeal, but I would never have come to Christ unless this came. Praise be to the Lord God Almighty. The second contrast that I want you to see is the contrast between the decree of Nebuchadnezzar and the decree of the Most High God. It's kind of humorous in chapter, verse 6. Uh, you, so it's just interesting. If you read through this, you go, oh, there's decrees going on. Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree. He has this bad dream, and he goes, I make a decree. Magicians, tell me the interpretation of my dream. It's like, you can make that decree, but you're not going to guarantee you're going to get an interpretation of it. What authority do you have? Very limited authority. You're, you're just really, you can't control whether these magicians or people or source or whatever they are, whether they can actually interpret your dream. Because you see, man is nothing. And God is everything. Because in verse 24 and 25, we see a far more potent and powerful decree. In verse 24, Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, and that you shall be driven away among men, and he gives the interpretation. This is of God, and you better guarantee it. When he decrees it, it happens. You're a king, and you can decree some things. You can decree a lot of things. Nebuchadnezzar could do a lot of decreeing, and most of those things could happen. This was not one of them, but I want to tell you the God of this Bible, when he decrees something, when he decrees that the Son of Man will die on a cross, it's going to happen. When he decrees that he's going to return, it will happen. When he decrees that he will judge sin, it will happen. When he decrees that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, he will always will keep his decrees because he is sovereign. And I want you to see the contrast from that. To turn away from yourself and look to God and throw yourself at his mercy. And based on what Jesus did, because God sent his son Jesus to bring you back into a right relationship with him because not one of us are born into a right relationship that decree is you will be judged unless you're found in Jesus. The third contrast I want you to see is there's a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar, how he sees himself in his own eyes, and who he'd become under God's judgment. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, a big tree, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's luscious, it's protecting everything. And I think in many ways, God was letting him to see a dream of that's what you view yourself as. You're this just, you're a, you're a, you're a sovereign Lord over the earth, you're the, an emperor, and you kind of view yourself as that big father. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar actually viewed himself. He would conquer nations, but usually wouldn't commit complete genocide. He'd actually take them under captivity, bring their best back to him. He tried to culture them with this Babylonian culture. And he viewed himself as, I'm a pretty good tyrant that just protects everybody. And I, I, I'm making things better. I'm, I'm making the world flourish like this tree that covers the earth. 
And God says, you want to know who you really are? I want you to see. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a glimpse of it. You're going to be taken out into the wild. You're going to turn like an animal. You're going to eat of the grass. You're going to, you're going to, your body, you're going to be insane. That's, that's where you really are apart from me. That's, that's who you really are in comparison to my glory. And oh, that is true in our lives. We so often think of ourselves far too high, sometimes too low, because we're not believing what God says of us in Christ, but far too high in our own estimations. We're going to see that God knows how to humble those who walk in pride. The last contrast I want you to see is between the mercy of God and, and, and on the one hand and the mercilessness mercilessness of Nebuchadnezzar on the other. You see this? So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, so this is what your dream means. Oh, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, if I could give you any advice, fall on your knees, maybe declare fast, turn of your ways, repent. And he, he says it in these words, verse 27, he says, if, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Look at verse 27. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. It's an act of repentance. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So the contrast here is, I, I think there's an implied just like in Nineveh, when Jonah warned Nineveh, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. They repented. God relented and didn't destroy them. That if Nebuchadnezzar would have fell on his knees and repented, that God would have had mercy. And Daniel's pleading with him to, have, to, to receive that mercy in repentance. And yet, he, there's also this, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not so merciful as you think. You need to repent of your sins and start showing mercy to all of those people you've oppressed. We can never, ever underestimate or overappreciate the mercy of God. God's mercy is of such that He comes and He takes pitiful people like you and me out of our hole, out of our filth, out of our mess, and he brings us into his palace. And he did it, he does it, does it at a very expensive cost called sending his son Jesus to rescue us. And he rescues all who repent of him. And he will not rescue one who does not repent and turn and humble themselves to him. So, so Daniel warns, Daniel interprets. And now let's get back to the story in verse 28. We see the nightmare comes true. Look, 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, you know what this means? Nebuchadnezzar probably got scared a little bit. He probably did some some walks in his gardens at night thinking, man, what should I do? Daniel, this is pretty serious. Daniel's been pretty legit in the past. What do I do? And then a month went by. I'm feeling good. 
Maybe Daniel was a little worked up for nothing. Maybe that dream, maybe it was just a bad meal. Two months go by, three months go by, 12 months go by. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been convicted? And, and you're relieved because time takes that conviction away, not repentance and faith. Daniel did, uh, Nebuchadnezzar did. Because at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. He wasn't in repentance. He wasn't humble. He wasn't looking to the most high God. And it says, and the king answered and said, Is this not Babylon, the great, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like the ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And so, what a tragedy. He didn't repent. God came and judged. And in verse 34, God brings mercy. I don't know. It doesn't say if Daniel, if Nebuchadnezzar repented, and that's what brought verse 34 on. Or God just said, there's an end of the time, and I'm just going to do it. Look at this. Look at their verse 34. At the end of the days, now remember who started this chapter. Dan, it was Nebuchadnezzar confessing God's greatness. At the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He's writing it like an autobiography. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honor Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom ensures, or endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And, I st and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. And his ways are just. He is able to humble. What a powerful and glorious ending confession. Do I, was Nebuchadnezzar, we call it saved? I don't know. He did seem to repent. He, did, he confessed God. Is, is Nebuchadnezzar going to be in heaven? I don't know. There's reason, possibly, because of his repentance here. Maybe from there on out, he, he, he was faithful to God, but of course his sons didn't carry it out. We're going to see that. You could read of that in the next chapter. Belshazzar is probably a great-grandson, even though it says father. It's a word for ancestor. 
And so I want you to just end with this confession. You want, you want, to, you want to confess to God rightly? And I'm going to invite to you, if you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure if I've come under a saving relationship with God, I almost want to say, you'll, you'll know it if you have. You're going to say, I know Jesus is my Savior. I love him. I want to follow him. If I've not been baptized, I want to get baptized as soon as possible. And I want to be part of his people because he has saved me and he's in me and I trust in him because I could in no way ever save myself. Well, these things, these confessions need to be true of you. And if you're here and you're a member of faith and you've prayed, you've confessed to the Lord, you're saved, you've seen God work in you, these still need to be confessions of our lives. See these four confessions. First of all, he confesses God's absolute sovereignty. I'm not talking about some doctrinal thesis where you have to go and figure out what all that means in regards to the will of man and the will of God. But I'll tell you what, Nebuchadnezzar saw vividly in his life as a king of a great empire, God is sovereign, not mighty or not so mighty Nebuchadnezzar. And he confesses his sovereignty. God is in control of all things. The doctrine of providence is, is an implication that flows from God is sovereign. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism said about what is... What then is the providence of God? And here is the answer, brothers and sisters. I believe it's impact in the words of Scripture in stories like Daniel and other Old Testament Scriptures and New Testament passages. Here it is. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God is absolutely sovereign, and we see it in the book of Daniel very clearly. And I do... If we want to really come to a submission to this God, we need to realize that God's in charge and you are not. In fact, you will want to be in charge. You want to bend the knee to this all-sovereign God. In fact, it, it was a story, especially in the early part of our country, people like Jonathan Edwards and other leaders, when they saw revival take place, one of the marks of that revival is when men and women and young boys and young girls came to realize something that first bothered them, that bothered them that God could be sovereign and saves only whom he wills. And then they came to realize it was in the Bible and they broke down and said, God, you're in control. I don't understand your ways, but I trust you and I put my trust in you. And Nebuchadnezzar had to realize that. So why should we study the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and his providence? What good will it do us? Well, someone else wrote this in the Heidelberg. So that when we realize the sovereignty of God, we may be patient in adversity. What adversity is in your life right now? That we might be thankful in prosperity. We don't stop and go, I did it. Look at my majesty. I got 15 likes on Instagram. <laughs> Pretty good. Stupid to think that's something to brag on. I, I got this, and anybody else could say I got this bigger and better and more. 
We are to be thankful in prosperity because it's all from God. He's, he's sovereign. And, for, and we have comfort in and be patient for what is future and good confidence in the faithful God and Father that no creature, not, not one creature shall separate us from God's love if we're in Christ since all creatures are so in his hand and without the, his will, nothing can be moved. He confessed his sovereignty. Do you see that? See him confessing his sovereignty? He says, he rules the kingdoms of men and he gives to whom he will. And not a human being can say to God rightfully, what have you done? Not rightfully. The second thing he confesses is that humankind's dependent and humble position before God. You see in here, he says, this God endures forever. His gener- he, he rules, in, but then verse 35, and the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, including me, Nebuchadnezzar. For us to be saved in so- coming under God's sovereignty, we must bow before him and say, I and everybody else is nothing compared to you. That is why missionaries can go to Cameroon and risk their lives or to, or to Myanmar, or to China, or to Tanzania, or certain parts of the world where there's great persecution in Iran and Iraq, and share the gospel faithfully and believe and risk it, is because they know that though man can kill me, they cannot kill my soul. And God is sovereign over all. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I have learned that all the inhabitants of the earth, there is nothing compared to God. Do you confess that about your own self, that you're nothing apart from God? That you must bow the knee before God, and he is God, not you. His agendas are what's right, not your agendas. His way is right, not your way. That's why this word needs to be central, because you need to bring it under it. And thankfully, he's so good, and he loves you, and he's called, he calls you... He calls himself father to you if you're in Christ. And he's going to care for you forever. He then, third confession, he confesses the goodness and rightness of God. Not is it God's sovereign and we're nothing, but he goes, and that's really good. God is really good in all that he does. He never makes a mistake and he's never wrong. He's never unjust. He's always right. That's how he ends this chapter. He says, for all his works are right. His ways are just. Do you know that when you get saved, if you're saved, young people, old people, whoever in between, if you're saved, you come to God and go, I now realize that I'm a sinner and I deserve hell and you're right to put me in hell. I don't understand all of it. It doesn't always feel that way, but I believe your word. It's right for you to punish me eternally. And it is It is also gloriously right and merciful that you sent your son. It's not right that I didn't didn't deserve it, but you showed your righteousness by punishing my sin in Jesus. We're going to actually see Jesus in in, in the book of Daniel pretty soon. But God's way of showing his rightness, his goodness, is, is most clearly seen in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in the glorious gospel. So we confess that he's good and he's righteous, even if we don't understand it. And lastly, he confesses that God opposes the proud. 
And I want to add something from 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, look how he ends this. Last, last sentence of this passage, or last phrase, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He doesn't always humble right now, but he will humble someday. You or the person that's bothering you, your greatest antagonist in your life, he may not be humbled now, but he will someday. He will be humbled before the hand of God. And we will be humbled before the hand of God unless we humble ourselves and trust and bow our knee to him and believe in him and trust him. Oh, let us not think that we are something, but, but the servants of God through his mercy, children of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are but recipients of free and sovereign grace completely lavished on us by mercy. We have nothing to brag on in and of ourselves. All our boasting is in God. All of our boasting must be in Jesus. This book is a loud declaration of know this God personally through Jesus Christ. Know this God personally and walk with this God. Whether you go through fiery trials, and you will, whether you deal with outward persecution, you might. Whether you face Satan's temptations, you will. You need to know this God. You need to confess He's sovereign. You need to confess your and every other's humanness in its humble position. They're nothing compared to Him. His goodness. And He opposes the proud, but oh, He gives grace to the humble. Will we receive Him today? Will we bow to Him today? Will you do that today in, in your family, in your home, in the decisions you make? Will you do that tomorrow when you get up to go to work? Will you do that with how you spend your money? How you care about your neighbors? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me, help us. to meet you through the book of Daniel in a, in a very profound way that our world, our worldview would be transformed as our eyes see you more clearly that we may trust, humble ourselves before you, cling to your son Jesus, and serve you. See, recipient servants of the king. Father, I pray that in this nation you would humble the proud and give grace to the humble. Remove the pride of our leaders and have mercy on our people. Help us to humble ourselves before you have to do it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.